abominations, all the immorality, every sin of every one of your people placed upon your body as you hung on the tree and you give us back forgiveness, freedom, righteousness, peace, glory. What a beautiful exchange. And we say thank you. And we say you are worthy, O Jesus, of all praise and glory and honor for the miracle of the gospel. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to live for you and you alone. To put to death the old man and make alive the new. To resist the seduction and temptation of the great prostitute who would seek to destroy us. That's all she wants to do, Lord. And and give us power. Give us illumination. Give us wisdom to see through her lies and to choose life. Pray especially for our young people today. That, Lord, they would make countercultural, rebellious choices to live for you and your glory, to trust your word and not their sinful flesh, not what they see in media, not what they see on campus, but your word. Help me today, Lord, to deliver not my message, but yours. We ask with great confidence in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we jump back into this amazing, mysterious book, uh, the book of Revelation. No S on the end of that. I think if you look at your Bible, you won't see Revelations. You'll see Revelation. It does warn us against adding to Scripture. So let's start there. Let's start there, Revelation. I am more convinced than ever that we need this book. I am more convinced than ever that this is worthy of our attention and study. It has been amazing to see God working in your lives through this book. Would you say that we are less fearful because of Revelation? Yeah. Would you say that we're more hopeful and more encouraged because of Revelation? I am. That's not how we tend to think of it. We think it would be the opposite. I came in on a high and then, whoa, you took me way down. I walked out afraid. That's not what happens with this great book. We have no doubt when we read it who is in absolute, total control of the universe. That everything, including the beast, Babylon, persecution, is in the hands of Almighty God and He is working it together for your good because He loves you and nothing can separate you from His love. I don't care what it is. If you want to say, what is the biggest theme of all the big themes in the book of Revelation? God is sovereign. So it's not meant to lead you to check the news 70 times a day in fear. What's going to happen? What did happen? What did I miss? Yes, there will be birth pangs. Yes, seals, trumpets, bowls. It has happened. It is happening. It will happen. And Jesus is in control. 
This is not a revelation of scary stuff. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis, Yesu Christu. First three words. Revelation, unveiling, revealing of Jesus Christ. His power, His grace, His glory. And if you are on His side, why would that not comfort you? That's the most comforting thing I ever heard. That's the point of the book. And I get frustrated with church entertainment culture that to sell books and sell movies has scared you. Because fear sells. Fear sells. So we flip the whole point of the book on its head. Makes me mad because it hurt a lot of people. Some of you are, are those people. And we're trying to undo what's been done. And we're trying to take the book. It's not easy to interpret, but we're trying to take it on its own terms. That's how you should take every book of the Bible, by the way, when you're trying to understand it. So what is it? What kind of literature is it? It's not a letter like Romans. It's not history, narrative like Exodus. It is a dreamlike vision given to a prophet, John. He's shown things. He sees images. So there's symbols. There's symbolic numbers. There's images. So we lean into that because that's what it's telling us it is. It's not a news report. It's visionary prophecy, most like moments you have in the prophets in the Old Testament. So there's truth, absolutely truth, but we have to engage our imaginations might be a little confusing, but it's there. And I'm trying to continue to approach it humbly, uh, acknowledging that, okay, I'm going to get things wrong. Jesus is going to correct me when I meet him on some things. Um, and there, there are different ways to interpret different things where we can say it's orthodox, it's not heresy, okay? I, I get humbled every week because I get like 100 or 200 pages in of reading commentaries. I'm like, I don't feel like I, I get it yet. So whether I like it or not, it does humble me. But I also want to be helpful to you. I also want to be helpful. I want to preach from conviction. And I believe that's God's heart. He wants to help you. He doesn't, it's not about solving riddles, going out in the cork board and solving riddles. of rev- It's about your life. The decisions that you're making every day. That's what this book is about. To make a difference. And in that vein, I don't think it's all about the future. I don't think we're taught, you know, why bother even preaching through the whole book if it's all way out there ahead. You know, if it really didn't have much to do with the first century or with us. I don't think that's true. Has happened, is happening, will happen like this. Repetition, cycles escalation toward the end, and we're getting toward the end, where things do get darker and also brighter. I was talking to someone the other day, Christian, uh, about Revelation, and they said almost offhandedly, like, yeah, I'm I'm glad I don't have to worry about most of the stuff in that book, because either I'll be dead or I'll be raptured out, am I right? I don't think that's right. I think that's a dangerous way to look at this book. 
that you can just dismiss most of it as, just, you know, something we can speculate about way off in the distance. I don't think so. From the rest of the New Testament, forget Revelation, the rest of the New Testament, it's clear we are in the end times. Jesus has come. Messiah has come, died, risen, ascended. All we're waiting for is Him to return. That's it. So the question it's asking you is, where is your spiritual allegiance today? Where is your spiritual allegiance today? Next three chapters, here's what John's getting after. There's a wedding coming. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Will you be there? Are you confident of that? Jesus, the groom, preparing to receive the church, his bride. It's been a long engagement. Some of you thought you had long engagements. 2,000 years plus, counting. There is a date. He just hasn't told us. There is a date, a date fixed, where there will be a wedding. And in the meantime, our call is to endure. Our call is to be faithful. The choices you're making now will determine if you're there on that day, the wedding day. It's going to be the greatest day of your life. Will you be there? Right now? There are seductions, sirens, smooth words, alluring beauty, seeking to draw you into spiritual adultery. They want you to cheat on your spouse, to seduce you into loving comfort, success, approval, power, more than you love Jesus. Praise God, through this book, He shows us the true nature of those things that, to, from our perspective, look very good, very real, very impressive. Don't believe what you see. Believe His Word. This is what you can trust, not your eyes, not the seduction of your senses. What appears very attractive from earth, money, sex, power, from the perspective of heaven is a destructive lie. God names her the great prostitute. You've got to say it. I can go with harlot if that makes you more uncomfortable. And someone stopped by the church today, saw the title in the bulletin, and was like, well, I'm glad I'm not here this Sunday. We've got to say it. It's meant to get your attention. God gave it to us for a reason. It's graphic on purpose, but we need to understand it. What does it mean? Because unless we do, we are in grave danger of not making it to the wedding day. And that's what God wants. He says, here's the harlot, here's the whore, here's the prostitute that is trying to seduce you to keep you from that great day. I don't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. Three points. The seduction of sexual immorality, the price of resistance, and the fate of the faithful. Number one, seduction of sexual immorality. Look at verse one. 
Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came. So we're getting more detail on the judgment of Babylon mentioned in chapter 16. Said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So you have leadership, kings, people in power, and then you have just unbelievers, dwellers on the earth. And the idea of a prostitute is not just that she does bad things, but she entices you to do them with her. Do you track in with that? There's seduction. There's enticement. You know, think of, okay, an actual prostitute. It doesn't just happen that you're with her committing sin. She entices you. You, you, you. There's a process to all of that. Same is true for us. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. So, so the spirit shows John this vision in the, in the desert, which in the Bible is often the place of demons, the place of temptation, very fitting for Babylon, for the prostitute. Okay, this is demonic activity 101. This is temptation 101. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, she's riding the beast. There's an image for you. Okay, you need to access that image, as strange as it is, to get to the truth. There is an alliance here. Who's the beast? Well, you remember from chapter 13, and if you want a full, um, you know, write up on that, listen to the message from chapter 13, but he is Satan's agent used to oppose God's people. And he's shown up in history as a lot of different things. Persons, powers, institutions, cultures, religions, philosophies. The beast is the power behind the power. Used by Satan, ultimately, and God, ultimately, in control. But taking many forms and many faces to oppose the kingdom of God however way it can. And it's clever. Now allied with the prostitutes to seduce you. He's using her. He's using these things. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Despite all the makeup, designer clothing, and pomp and circumstance, this is her true identity. Begetter, reproducer of moral abominations. Chief among them, and it gets repeated, sexual immorality. Which in our culture goes by different names, doesn't it? Nobody says sexual immorality. It goes by fun, have a good time, freedom, get your needs met, have a happy hookup. No strings attached. It's really good marketing. Like if you're a marketing person, you're like, oh, I need to hire that guy. I need to hire her. Understand 
the most powerful worldviews are the ones we absorb without knowing it. The most powerful worldviews are the ones you absorb without knowing it. And that is nowhere more true than when it comes to sex. To the secular view, the secular worldview of sex. Let me test that. (laughs) Most people would say that Christians are anti-sex and secular culture is pro-sex. Would you agree? (laughs) That we're the ones saying no. And pop culture is the one saying yes. Would you agree? That we're Ned Flanders and secular culture is Joey Tribbiani. Okay? Like, this is fun, this is smooth, this is cool, and we're like you know, buttoned up so tight. That's a really, really big lie. And I want to explain it to you because it's important. You need to understand it because we bought in more than we think we have. It has everything to do with your body. It has everything to do with how you view your body, the human body. Babylon wants you to believe that you can disassociate your inner person from your body. That these are totally, you can separate them. That as long as you have consent, sex is simply about physical release and recreation. That's all it is. It's like eating. You know, you're hungry, you go have some food, you feel better, you move on. That's what you're being told. Young people, you are being told that maturity is being able to engage in sexual activity free from commitment and attachment. That's being mature. That's being sophisticated. If I can separate sex from love, now I'm a sophisticated, erudite person uh, who really gets it and is wise in the world. One author says it this way. Now you're ready to embark on a lifetime of meaningless encounters. Doesn't that sound good? Conversely, those who dream of love are immature, should return to playing with dolls and trucks until they can be callous enough to seek sexual non-intimacy. You're fed the lie that your body, it's just a pleasure machine. That's all it is. You can do whatever you want with it. It, it. it doesn't matter. Heterosexual, homosexual, change your gender, uh, you know, look at other bodies, pornography, uh, you know, sexually violate your own body. It, it's just a body. It doesn't matter. Is what you're being told is what we're being told. You can disassociate. It shouldn't affect your inner well-being? How childish. It shouldn't affect your conscience. You shouldn't feel guilt or shame over any of that. What are you talking about? Even non-Christians are realizing that don't work. It's not a coincidence that the two most prescribed drugs on college campuses are Prozac and the birth control pill. Think about that. 
Young people, especially women, are lining up to see counselors, therapists, doctors, anyone who can help them with the depression they feel because they've believed this. They're living this lifestyle, and it's like, what? It's not, why do I feel sad? Why do I feel so unfulfilled? I'm having tons of non-intimate sex. What's the problem? The Christian story comes along and says, it's all a package deal. There is this beautiful idea of one flesh where it's all one package. Emotional, spiritual, physical, legal, financial, all supposed to go together. If you pull any of those out, it doesn't work. You try to take the physical out of that and then just have that apart from all that, it won't work. It doesn't work. It's actually a holistic high view of people. Some of you think, um, well, I've got a long-term girlfriend, a long-term boyfriend. We'll probably get married. I should be fine crossing a few lines. You're believing the prostitute. That is a low view of the body. It's a low view of intimacy. It's inherently selfish, and it won't work. You can tell yourself whatever you want, but it's not going to work. Because you're trying to have all, all the elements of one flesh apart from, in that case, legal. We have not committed to each other. So you can, you know, cohabitate. You can try to get it all. And actually, statistics tell us you're more likely to get divorced. Not more likely to stay together, more likely to get divorced. God built this design into our bodies. He hardwired it in. When a man and a woman have sex, okay, for the woman, there's a release of oxytocin. For the man, mainly, there's a release of vasopressin. These are hormones, chemicals that biologically move you to bond and attach. That's what they do. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? No, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's just a one night. We just, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> you united to her as one. A Duke University professor paraphrases that verse this way. Don't you know when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Oh, yeah. Your body makes a promise. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't say I was, you know, I'd call her. Or I didn't. Your body did. Sex is like glue. It's designed to bond us. And I would just say sexual activity, period. All the way leading up to that, it's designed to bond you. It's just the way it is. God designed it that way. It's good. It's good when it's used according to God's wise design. So imagine how damaging it is to tell yourself after you do that, I just need to move on. I need to not care. Why do I care so much? Why can't I let it go? Why can't I be more callous and just, you know, move on to the next person? 
You're dehumanizing yourself. It's dehumanizing. Stripping your life of depth and significance. This is why therapists have 200 deep waiting lists. Listen, and this is the big takeaway for you. I want you to remember. The world does not have a high view of sex. It has an incredibly low view of sex. The world does not have a high view of the body. It has an incredibly low view of the body. It has an incredibly low view of creation. Studies have shown the happiest, most sexually fulfilled people are married, middle-aged, conservative Christians. What do you know? How about that? You were right to leave that Brazilian helicopter pilot for Stan, your plumber husband. Yeah. One study said, in real life, the unheralded, seldom-discussed world of married sex is actually the one that satisfies people most. Not going to see that on a sitcom. So young people... Don't think you're rebelling when you go to a party and hook up with someone. You're following the script. Don't think, I'm just doing what feels good, baby. I'm out there living my best life. No, you're getting scammed. You fell for the sales pitch of the prostitute. You want to rebel? Enjoy sex with one person till death do you part. That's an act of rebellion. This is what you have to know, guys, if you're going to resist the seduction and temptation because it's real. She is really good at what she does. She's been doing it a long time, a lot of practice. It's good. She says, hey, Life is hard. Come to me for some relief. You deserve it. You've been working hard. You've been, you need to play hard. Have a little fun. Have a little comfort. What's the harm? Nobody's getting hurt. It's all consensual. It's all agreed upon. It's fine. It's a little release. Maybe a little excitement, a little danger in your life. Life Is your life a little boring? Come to me. I'll get the blood pumping. Jesus doesn't want this for you. All he says is no. I say yes. She's really good. Even the Apostle John marvels. Marvels. Verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. In other words, she fine. She looked good. I mean, all blinged out. Look at that stuff. Purple, gold. You know, she's got the makeup on. Perfect. It's like, oh, she looks kind of good. That's some eye candy right there. And, and he's like taken in for a minute. He knows that she's evil, but he's taken in because... Visually, 
Impressive. If John, one of the 12, apostle, can get taken in by the prostitute, you better believe you and I can. Don't think you can't. Don't think you haven't. This is now, guys. This is not some point in the future. This is now. This is our culture. But the angel says, why do you marvel? Why are you so impressed? You shouldn't be. Let me show you what happens to her. Let me show you her true nature. Destruction at the hands of the Lamb. So, as Christians, knowing that this is real, this is attractive, this is sensually appealing, we have to present something better, which we have. Do you, do you know that? Like, our story is a thousand times better. And, and here's some, here, listen to me. We have to use reason, not just rules. We have to use reason, not just rules. Parents, future parents. We have to reason, not just lay down rules. Sex is not just about physical pleasure. It's not just about reproduction. It is those things, but it's not just those things. It's about deep communion between two people. You are not just a body. You are not to be used by someone else. Or to use yourself. You are a person made in the image and likeness of God with enduring eternal value and worth. Act like it. A no big deal view of sex has an incredibly low view of the body. A low view of you. We say it's a big deal. Which every person, even if they're an atheist, feels in, inside because they're made in the image of God. So you, you can't just teach the negative, guys. If you teach the negative only, don't do it. Sex is bad. It's dirty. You don't want to get pregnant, do you? That'll ruin your life. It's not going to work. You're just reinforcing a low view of sex, a low view of the body. And we're setting our kids up for hypocrisy because eventually they're going to go out into the world they're going to taste of these things and be like, this is bad. This feels good. And, and they will tell you what you want to hear and lie to you. While they run to the world for fun. Because you're Ned Flanders. You're the buzzkill. You're this, don't do it. If I catch you. And you've never explained to them the beauty of God's design. You've never explained to them that this thing that does feel good is good. God created it. And they will say, um, Mom and Dad, what else did you lie to me about? Did you lie to me about Jesus dying on the cross and his resurrection? Because it seems like you didn't tell me the truth on this thing. So can I trust you for everything else? And they'll lie to you until they're old enough to feel confident enough to confront you, and then that will happen. So we have to tell the truth. We have to tell the positive. We have to be brave. It might be uncomfortable, okay? Yes, yes. I'm having these conversations with four daughters, three out of four so far. It's not always comfortable. Sometimes I look at Carrie, please help. This is your part. 
That's okay. But you have to get out in front of it. You have to talk about it. Because guess what? The prostitute, she's on the streets. She's active. She's coming for your kids. Those who believe her will find only death. And the church, our church, needs to be a place of refuge for those who have the scars. Do you believe that? It should never be, I told you so. It should be, come and be healed. Come and be made new. Come and be forgiven at the feet of Jesus. There is hope for the most broken sexual sinner, of which we all are. That's what our church needs to be. Now this all, (laughs) let me just say, uh, if that's you, I just want to be sensitive to the Spirit. If that's you, if you're feeling that, if you're like listening to me, like, hey, that's me, that's my life, that's my past, please come talk to somebody. Don't walk alone. Don't hold it all in. Talk to me. Talk to Trevor. Talk to Matt. Talk to an elder. Talk to a friend. This is safe. Guys, if we can't be safe here, where can we be safe? It's safe to be sick. It's safe to be broken. It's safe to have an ugly past. It takes courage. So in the name of Jesus, have that courage to talk to somebody and to resist. There's a price. Number two, the price of resistance. Verse six. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, The powers of this world have real power. Not ultimate power, but real power. When when you see them for what they are, fleeting, unsatisfying, deceiving, there will be consequences. The Christians who received this letter, they understood that. Probably better than we do. I would just say, yes, better than we do. Nancy Piercy writes, Some of the early martyrs were slaves who proclaimed their freedom in Christ by refusing to sexually service their masters. So you have a power dynamic, okay? And, and Christianity was revolutionary because in the ancient world, women were nothing. They, they didn't have any rights. They didn't have any say. You just did what you were told. And here comes, you know, <laughs> the New Testament saying, no, you're equal. No, even in marriage, sex should be voluntary between two people, um, Husbands, actually lay down your life for your wife. Don't just tell them what to do. That's a revolution. Patamena was a slave in Alexandria, Egypt, whose master was so angry when she refused his advances that that he reported her as a Christian to the authorities. They, in turn, threatened to hand her over to the gladiators to be raped but she persuaded him to execute her instead by slowly immersing her in boiling tar. The beauty of her character as she faced death inspired the conversion of several other people, including one of her guards, Basilides. He was likewise martyred. So 
So if you're made fun of, if you're ostracized, if you're viewed as stupid, gullible, prudish Christian, you can take it the way Jesus took it. And if that happens to you, you are not cursed. You are blessed. Because those who share in his suffering will share in his glory. That's the only way. So don't think something strange is happening to you. If you get a little, you know, in the workplace, resist. Jesus gave you that power. Power of the cross is behind you. The power of the Holy Spirit is in you. The power of the resurrection is ahead of you. And your small acts of rebellion against this world may induce people to become Christians. Church history tells us that over and over. When we stand up and we don't give in and we say, no, I'm with Jesus, whatever that means, whatever it takes, people are like, whoa, that's weird. They're living for something big. They're living for something I don't have. I want to know about that. Lastly, the fate of the faithful. Only two fates in this life. No one is neutral. Everyone has chosen a side, is choosing a side, will choose. Verse 8. The beast that you saw and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. So, catch this. The angel is mocking the beast. Was, is not, will rise. Who does that sound like? Jesus. A weak and cheap imitation of Jesus who is the living one. The one who was dead and is now alive for eternity. If you're with the beast, you have no future. It's as though you're not. And the only reason he's rising is to be destroyed. It's mocking them. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Skip down to verse 13. Can't get to all these details. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. I love how matter-of-factly that's stated. It's like, all the kings and nations of the earth will devote all their resources, all their energy, all their power to destroying the lamb, and the lamb conquers them. Almost like it wasn't hard. Do you get that feel? Like it just, oh, all your nukes, all your this, all your that, and the lamb conquered them. So at the end, there will be this drawing. God will be doing it. God will be putting it in their mind to unite together, come after him so that, drawing them in, classic, he will destroy them. God's playing chess, folks. Everybody else is playing checkers. And the world verse 14, for he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. So in 13:4 the world asked, 
who is able to make war with the beast? In other words, like, who can, who can come at the beast? Here's the answer. Jesus. Some of you, for different reasons, think very negatively about yourselves. Almost like an addiction, your mind goes to negative self-talk. You know if I'm talking to you. You get on a loop. It gets on a loop in your mind. And I just want to interrupt that loop with the truth of Scripture. If you are in Christ, that is not how God sees you. You're thinking about what I did, what I didn't do, why did I say that, why did I think that, look, I'm not, I'm not attractive, whatever. You're just playing those things on a loop in your mind, and Scripture comes to tell you the truth about who you are. Because God doesn't see you that way. God doesn't see you negatively. You're going to be there with Him. It says with, with. Those with Him are called chosen and faithful. At this moment, those with Him will be you. He chose you to be a king or queen in His kingdom. Do you know that the, the angels will see you as a superior? They will say, sire. That may make you uncomfortable. Not just your name, but king, queen. And you will be there. You are going to vanquish the hordes of darkness. Demons, the beast, false prophets, the dragon himself. But I never played Resident Evil. How am I going to do that? It's okay. It's fine. But I don't own a sword. He'll give you what you need. It'll be fine. And you will be there. Do you think of yourself like that? You will judge angels. That's how much wisdom you'll have. For those of you who think, I don't have anything to offer. I don't know. I'm not very wise. You're going to judge the angels. You're going to be on the bench. They're going to be in front of you. Your heart and your mind will be so pure that the only clothes fitting for you are transcendent white. Is that how you think about yourself? When it all goes down, Jesus wants you there. When he reigns in his kingdom forever and ever and ever, you will reign with him, co-heirs with Christ. What if you put thoughts like that on a loop? What would that do to you? I think it might transform you. I think you might have a little more confidence in the best sense of the word. It's not, I'm, just, I'm not talking positive self-talk. It's letting Scripture define who you are, not your sin. It's letting heaven define who you are, not the world. It's letting grace define who you are, not your fears and anxieties. I just love how Revelation talks like that. just says it. Chosen, faithful. You're with him when he conquers. Let me finish up. Verse 16. Ten horns that you saw, they and the beasts will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind, handing over their royal power to the beasts until the words of God are fulfilled. So let's take the prostitute metaphor a, a little bit further. Her pimp turns on her. The beast turns on her. 
So the end of the, the prostitute is destruction for you and for her. So, so don't take the bait, guys. Don't take the bait. See through it. Believe the Bible, not what you see. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long to be there on that day. It's, it's crazy to think about being caught up in the air with you and the last battle and um, Lord, all the forces of darkness gathered to Armageddon where you will vanquish them and we with you, your holy army. Give us the eyes to see ourselves that way now, to prepare for the kingdom now. And Lord, to see through the lies of the world, to see the things that are passing away as tempting and real as it feels, Lord, I, I pray for power to see through it and to resist it. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.